0: 1 Corinthians 12, beginning verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith... By the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you again for your word. We thank you that uh, we can live by it, that you have given us your wisdom in written form. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have given us instructions Uh, concerning every aspect of the church and uh, you have given us your word in regard to the use of spiritual gifts and lord we pray that you would help us to rightly divide your word that we might understand it properly that we might uh, know these principles related to spiritual gifts and how we can use the gifts that you've given to us for the building up of your body And Lord, we know that's your desire, that's your will. So Lord, we pray tonight again as we go through uh, this passage that we might understand it rightly, that we might know how we are to operate the gifts in your church. And help us with that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in our study on spiritual gifts, we have looked at the importance of spiritual gifts. We spent uh, some time on that. They are essential to the building up of the body of Christ, and all of us must be utilizing our spiritual gifts uh, that He has given to us. That's God's design. We also looked at the purpose of spiritual gifts, and I mentioned it is for the building up of the body of Christ, Um, and not only to build up the church the body of christ but also to maintain the unity of the spirit and we looked at that as well and god uses the the gifts as we blend those gifts together and use them in the right way god uses that to preserve and protect the unity of the church so we spent time on that one as well After that, we looked at the diversity of spiritual gifts. Technically, we are all idiots. We're all spiritual snowflakes. If you don't know what that means, you've got to go back and check the archives. Pastor John said, I can't believe you called me an idiot and a snowflake in the same sermon. I did, but uh, technically that word idiot means peculiar, and that emphasizes the fact that we're all different we all have a different mix of gifts and so we went through that as well now we need to move on to the categories of spiritual gifts and that's what we'll be looking at tonight the categories of spiritual gifts as we think about the spiritual gifts we need to recognize There are a lot of different ways to categorize them, and you've probably seen different lists and different groups and that kind of thing. Uh, Various Bible scholars have grouped these in different ways, but I like to think of the spiritual gifts in three main categories, three primary categories. Number one, we have gifted men. These are discussed in Ephesians chapter four. Second we have what you might call permanent edifying gifts. And then thirdly, there are temporary sign gifts. So those are the three categories that we're going to look at. Under the category of permanent edifying gifts, we're also going to break that down into two groups. But let's begin by examining these three main categories of spiritual gifts we need to start with the gifted men and for this and i mentioned last time that is not necessarily a spirit these are not spiritual gifts per se but they're men who have certain giftedness so turn with me to ephesians chapter 4 ephesians chapter 4 And look with me at verses 11 through 13, Ephesians 4. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the, faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, what we have listed here is not really spiritual gifts per se, as I mentioned. These are men who have been gifted by the Holy Spirit in a special way to perform a leadership role in the church. They're not spiritual gifts necessarily but there is no doubt that there are spiritual gifts involved these men are gifted men and the men that God has given to lead the church has been these men have been gifted by the holy spirit to perform a particular role so in the same way that the holy spirit has given spiritual gifts to believers for the sake of building up the church he has also given some gifted men for the very same purpose notice in that passage is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service for the building up of the body of christ so these are similar yet there's a distinction that needs to be made between these two spiritual gifts and gifted men These are not just spiritual gifts, but official titles or, if you will, special ministries, ministry callings, offices in the church. Now, Paul lists five offices here in this passage. Two of them are foundational offices and three of them are permanent. So let's start with the foundational offices temporary ones first he mentions apostles apostles now the word apostle in a genuine sense small a means one that is sent it is simply referring to a messenger and sometimes that is the way the word apostle is used in the new testament however Christ used the word also in a technical sense to refer to the Twelve. So it became an official title for a select group of men. And Paul himself was also referred to as an Apostle, capital A. Paul was also a part of this unique group of foundational officers in the church. So what was their role? Well, there are two primary aspects of their role. First of all, to bear witness to the resurrected Christ. Turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're going to go back and forth just a little bit tonight. Acts chapter 1 is where the disciples are choosing a replacement for Judas Iscariot, who has, of course, betrayed Christ and taken his own life. But look with me at Acts 1 and verse 21. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, One of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas has turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered, notice, with the eleven apostles. The concern that the disciples expressed was that there needed to be another one chosen to bear witness to Christ's resurrection. That Seem to have been an important part of the role of this foundational office. And we need to understand there are no apostles today, capital A, in this sense of the word, because there cannot possibly be anyone today who was an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And there are all kinds of charismatic churches today who are claiming to have apostles. They don't, at least not in that sense. That cannot be the case unless you're only using the word apostle in the general sense. But think about it. If you do that, then biblically all of us would have to be considered apostles because all of us are called to be witnesses for Christ in a general way as those who are sent. But you can't use the term Apostle, capital A, today in this special sense because the Apostles were foundational officers. And part of their role role was to bear witness to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But there was another aspect of the role of these foundational officers, and that was to lay a doctrinal foundation for the church to lay a doctrinal foundation for the church turn with me you're in acts one turn over to acts chapter two and look with me at verse 42 notice what it says and they that is the new converts were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Notice the phrase, the apostles' teaching. What is that? Well, it was the New Testament, which had not yet been put into written form at that time, but ultimately it became canonized, and that that we have now in the New Testament is the apostles' teaching, the apostles' Doctrine. You see, the design of God for the formation of the church was for the, the apostles to lay down the doctrinal, solid, biblical teaching for the church at the very beginning. To lay that solid foundation upon which the church would be built. And since their purpose was to lay the foundation... After the foundation was laid, there was no longer need for any apostles. I remember several years ago, quite a few years ago now, building our house. And uh, I remember going out, and it was a cold day, and Mr. Pipkin was out there, and it was time for the big poor. They were going to pour the foundation. Man, what an exciting day. I can still remember that. And they had this form all around and everything. And all of a sudden, these trucks started coming in. And the concrete began to flow. And they poured the foundation. And several days later, they took the forms off. And there was the concrete. And, man, it was exciting. Now, now we're ready to build on top of that let me tell you, we only poured the foundation how many times? One time. Just one time. You only have to pour the foundation once. Once that's done, then you go on to building the building. Listen, the apostles had no successors. As W.A. Criswell rightly put it, Like delegates to a constitutional convention, when their work was done, their office ceased. Apostles and New Testament prophets have ceased. They are foundational officers. Their work was for the foundation of the church, and when their work was completed, then the evangelists and the pastors and teachers took over from there. The apostles are never mentioned in the pastoral epistles of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. No mention of the apostles. That gives us the teaching, the direction of the church. The pastoral epistles gives us the basis for the duration of the church. You have the others mentioned, but none of the foundational officers. And in all the instruction that's given in the pastoral epistles on how the church is to be governed and operated, you won't find a single word about an apostle or a prophet. Why? Because that had ceased. That office was foundational, and the role of that, these people ceased. Their purpose was connected with the foundation of the church, not the ongoing Ministry of the church, not the building up of the church after the foundation was laid. Their purpose was to lay the foundation. Once the foundation was laid, these officers ceased. Now, there's one more important observation about apostles that needs to be made. God confirmed the authority of the apostles by supernatural sign gifts. The apostles had some unique abilities and miraculous powers that others did not have. For example, according to Acts 5, verses 12 through 16, whenever Peter's shadow fell on people, they were healed. In fact, you might want to look at that passage with me. Turn over to Acts chapter 5. We're in the book of Acts. Look at Acts 5, verses 12 through 16. Notice what it says. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. The apostles were a unique group of men for a unique period of history to lay down a doctrinal foundation for the church and to establish a pattern for the rest of church history. As such, God granted them special miraculous abilities that no one else had in order that they might demonstrate that uh, this might demonstrate that God had given them the authority for this special role. That they had the authority to proclaim what is sound doctrine and what is not. So that's important to understand about apostles. But let's move to the second temporary foundational office, and that is New Testament prophets. New Testament prophets. And again, this is a term that can be used in a general way or a technical way. Generally, a prophet is one who speaks out. For the most part, in the English language, it is connected with the idea of speaking forth. The function of the New Testament prophet was very similar to that of the apostle, with just a few differences. Number one, prophets were more localized than apostles. Number two, whereas the apostles had laid down the doctrinal foundation for the whole church. The prophets were primarily focused on the practical application of apostolic truth in specific churches until the New Testament was canonized. And third, they were subject to the authority of the apostles. They ranked under the apostles, according to... 1st Corinthians fourteen thirty seven. in fact turn with me and let's look at 1st Corinthians fourteen thirty seven for a moment back in 1st uh, Corinthians 1st Corinthians 14 verse 37 it says if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment Paul says Even though someone may see himself as a prophet, he is still under the Lord's commands through the apostles, of which Paul was included. And not only were the prophets under the authority of the apostles, they were also accountable to one another. I mean, look at verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 14. And let two or three prophets speak. And let the others, notice, pass judgment. They're going to make an assessment of what the prophets say. Is this true or not? Is this biblical or not? Look at verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. They're accountable to one another. The word given through a New Testament prophet was always evaluated by other New Testament prophets. And the key aspect of this evaluation was no doubt whether their message lined up with apostolic doctrine. Now, just like the apostles, the prophets were foundational. And when their perfect purpose was complete, uh, the prophets also passed from the scene just like the apostles did, and just like the miracle sign gifts did. And we're going to spend a lot more time on that as we go through the rest of this. So, in summary of the two foundational offices, the apostles and New Testament prophets had three functions. Foundation, revelation, and confirmation. Those three things foundation, revelation, and confirmation. The revelation part is now complete. That part of their function was fully accomplished when the New Testament was canonized. And so that part is no longer uh, in order today. And if that part is complete, which it is, then there's no longer any need for the miraculous Confirming signs, so they also passed from the scene. And since the foundation was laid, there is no longer any need to go back and lay another foundation. In fact, it is impossible to do so, the Bible says. So, when these ministries became complete, the apostles and New Testament prophets were no longer needed in the church And the other officers took their place. So let's move now to the permanent fundamental offices. The permanent fundamental offices. The first one is that of the evangelists. Evangelists. The evangelist in that day was a little different from what we call an evangelist today. We attend... ...to think of an evangelist as someone who travels around preaching the gospel like Billy Graham did. But I believe that the evangelists of that day pretty much took over the role of the apostles. They were involved in kind of an itinerant ministry. They weren't as localized as the other two offices... The basic function of an evangelist is to preach the gospel and to plant new churches. So a church planter or a missionary in our modern terminology would be similar in function to the New Testament evangelist. And of course this would also include include those who are involved in more of a harvesting type of ministry like full-time evangelists are today so we have the evangelists those who proclaim the gospel those who plant churches missionaries etc secondly there were the pastor teachers this is not one uh, not two offices excuse me this is only one office not two that's what i meant to say the greek text does not imply two people here but one person that does both. Pastor and teacher. they do. This is one person that does both. This person took the place of the New Testament prophet. When the New Testament prophets all died off, the teaching pastor took up the ministry of the word to the local church. He is called here a teaching pastor, so he does two things. He shepherds and he teaches the Word. He shepherds and he teaches. He's to teach the Word of God. He's to care for the Lord's flock. He is to provide spiritual oversight and protection. He is to lead, to warn, to rule, to teach and to shepherd according to the Scriptures. This fits the role of the elder in the New Testament. And these offices are intended by God to complement one another. The teaching shepherd should not be critical of the evangelist and vice versa. They're to work together to help build up the church as a whole. And I agree with John MacArthur that there is one more New Testament office and that is teachers. This is different from pastor teachers. There are some others that are referred to as teachers. Uh, in fact, uh, turn with me. Look, look with me at First Corinthians 12 and verse 28. Back in First Corinthians 12, verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Now, some people would say that these are the same as the pastor-teachers, and that is certainly a possibility, But it's also possible that this is a different category because it is a different Greek word that is used here. Entirely different Greek word. Notice several things about this verse. First of all, notice that he mentions apostles and prophets just as he does in Ephesians 4. But notice he does not mention evangelists. And he uses an entirely different word for teacher. So it is possible that he could be referring to those who supplement, undergird, and add to the ministry of the evangelist and the pastor-teacher. So this might refer to an adult Bible teacher in the local church, or it might refer to seminary professors or Bible college professors. Now, this is my opinion. I'm not taking this view dogmatically, but we know the first two are for sure. Evangelists and pastor-teachers are those who have taken the place of the apostles and the New Testament prophets. But there also might be some others that the Bible refers to here as teachers Well, let's move on now to the second major category of spiritual gifts, and that is the permanent edifying gifts, the permanent edifying gifts. Some of the gifts that are listed here in 1 Corinthians 12, the Spirit of God has given for the duration of the church's history. There are other gifts listed here, that were given only for a short period of time and for a specific purpose, and then were no longer needed. We're going to look at each of these. Now, there are two groups of the permanent edifying gifts. And this is where the subcategories come into play. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. So we're talking now about the permanent edifying gifts Two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Let's look, first of all, at the speaking gifts. There are five speaking gifts given in Romans 12, 6-8, and 1 Corinthians 12, 8-10. You have to combine those two lists. There are five speaking gifts. The first one is the gift of prophecy. This gift is to be distinguished from the office of prophet that we just talked about. This is not the same thing. This is the gift of prophecy. See, this is different from what we talked about earlier when we talked about New Testament prophets. There's a big debate today in the church about whether the gift of prophecy still exists. And usually the outcome of the debate is dependent on how you define prophecy. The word that is used here in 1 Corinthians 12.10 literally means to speak before an audience or to speak publicly. Does not necessarily mean to predict or to reveal. Most often, it is used in the sense of proclaiming something that God has already revealed And if this gift is indeed still for today, then I believe that is what the gift is now. It is the proclamation of that which God has already revealed. We would call this the gift of preaching. This is the gift of preaching. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, One who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Now, I really wish the Bible translators had used the word proclaiming instead of prophesying because then there wouldn't be so much confusion about this. We would all understand this is, this is the proclamation of God's word. This is preaching. This is the gift of proclaiming. God's truth to men. And there has never been a time in the history of the church where there have not been men with this gift exhorting and edifying and consoling the church. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14.1, we see where it indicates that this is one of the most vital gifts for the life of the church. This is the one that counts... The most. We've got to have prophecy. It's critical for the church. Now, 1 Corinthians 14 1 says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Why? Because this is the gift that builds up the church the preaching of the word. Now, we must recognize that. There was a time in the church's infancy when this gift was also revelatory in nature. It involved the giving of new revelation by God. But after the completion of the New Testament canon, this gift became limited to that of reiterating God's truth that had already been revealed. And I believe one of the best definitions of this gift is found in Revelation 19.10. Turn with me to Revelation 19.10 for just a moment. Revelation 19.10. John says here in Revelation 19.10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, that is the angel. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And here it is. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is prophecy? It's giving the testimony of Jesus. What is the testimony of Jesus? It's the New Testament. So what does a prophet do? He proclaims the truth of the New Testament and really the Old Testament too, because that gives the necessary background and foundation for the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14.37 indicates that, Any who would exercise this gift should be judged by the Word. How can you tell if a preacher is preaching truth or not? Hold what he is teaching up to the standard of God's Word, and you'll know. So to summarize, prophecy is the gift of proclaiming God's revealed truth. At one time it was revelatory, but when the Bible was finished, that aspect of its function ceased. As Revelation 22:18 and 19 says, "...if anyone adds to them the words of this prophecy, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy..." God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. God says, there are two things you're not to do with my word. You're not to add to it. You're not to take away from it. And there are some very serious penalties mentioned to show how serious this is. And yet, there are those in the church today who are still claiming to be receiving new revelation from God. Folks, listen, the revelatory aspect is finished. It belonged to the infancy of the church, but it concluded at the closing of the canon. Now, only the non-revelatory aspect of the gift of prophecy continues. Here's another speaking gift. It's called the word of knowledge. And we'll get through these quickly. Here we have about five minutes. Look at 1 Corinthians twelve eight. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. You say, well, what is this gift, the word of knowledge? Here's the definition. It is the Spirit-given ability to observe facts and make conclusions. In other words, it's the the ability to understand the Bible. This is someone who's good with exegesis. Someone who has good hermeneutics. This is someone who is a good, uh, diligent interpreter of God's word. You know, there's some believers who have a special ability to draw insights from scripture and to point out facts that we often miss in the text and to make observations and to draw conclusions and these are tremendous gifts to the church people who are exercising the word of knowledge and again like the gift of prophecy there was a time in the life of the church when this was also revelatory but it too became a gift of of reiteration of God's truth. Now, the way the charismatics view this gift, I believe, is a failure to understand that special revelation ceased with the completion of the New Testament canon. This is where it all breaks down. And we're going to spend a lot more time on this as we go through this. But I think the best definition of this gift, the word of knowledge, is found in 1 Corinthians 13, and verse 2. And we'll end with this. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. Notice what it says. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. This is the gift of understanding the mysteries that have been revealed to us by God. And we're out of time for tonight, and we'll get to the others next time. But isn't it it a wonderful thing that God has given various people in the church different gifts because we all benefit from these gifts. That's the way God has designed it. Let's be using our gifts for His purposes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again tonight that you have given us your word. You have given us a clear understanding of what these gifts are, how they're to be used. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a proper understanding and a proper application of these gifts in the body that uh, uh, we can be a, about your work and that uh, we can see your church being built up in every way. And, Lord... Uh, We thank you that uh, we don't have to guess about these things. You have equipped us. uh, You've given us everything we need. And we thank you for the blessing of these who have the various gifts because they're a blessing to all of us collectively. And we thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.